Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Joining us now are two very special guests. The first one is a man whose first book was certain critically acclaimed, Glenn Burke Autobiography, Out at Home, The Glenn Burke Story, which chronicled the life of the first Major League Baseball player to come out publicly. His other titles included Steve Blass, A Pirate for Life, Mookie Life Baseball, and the 86 Mets, which made the New York Times bestseller list, followed by the equally impressive Kings of Queens Life Beyond Baseball with the 86 Mets. It is a pleasure to welcome back the former Emerson Lion himself, Eric Sherman, to WLIE 540 AM Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Eric. Thank you, Mark. Great to be on the show again. Our pleasure. Joining Eric on the phone is the subject of Eric's latest book. He is the man who signed with the Baltimore Orioles as an amateur free agent in 1962. He finished third in the American League Rookie of the Year balloting for the 1966 world champion Baltimore Orioles. He also has two historic lasts in postseason play. He got the last hit ever off of Sandy Koufax in the 66 World Series and made the last out flying to Cleon Jones to make the New York Mets world champions in 69. He's best remembered, however, for bringing the Mets to the World Championship 17 years later as the manager of the Mets. He managed four other teams as well, having a winning record with each of them. He is a three-time World Series champ, three-time Gold Glove Award winner, four-time All-Star, two-time Manager of the Year, and member of both the New York Mets and Baltimore Orioles Hall of Fame. His new book co-authored with Eric, My Wild Ride in Baseball and Beyond, not only details all the great baseball moments, but also paints a picture of a true renaissance man, detailing his incredible success as a land investor, pilot, scratch golfer, scuba diver teacher, and mathematician, and his pioneering use of sabermetrics in the big leagues. It is a pleasure to welcome back Davey Johnson to WLIA Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Davey. Hey, guys. You know... That's quite a litany, man. I don't know if I can live up to all that. <laughs> Listen, I read the book, and you can live up to that and much, much more. You know, Eric, it's interesting that while doing the intro, you look that there's quite a bit of crossover subject matter of your books. Glenn Burke played in a playoff series against Davey when Davey was a member of the 77 Phillies. Steve Blass played um, against Davey in the 71 World Series. And, of course, Mookie and the guys in your Kings and Queens book all played for Davey. I'm wondering how often Davy came up during those other projects, and is that what maybe you know planted a seed in your head? Like, wow, I, maybe I need to do a book with Davy Johnson. Well, he certainly came up in the Steve Blass book, uh, the Mookie book, of course, the Kings of Queens. Uh, Davy was kind enough to write the forward, um, but really, I think what sparked the interest was the fact uh, that his uh, son-in-law son had expressed. Uh, to me, that that Davy might be ready to tell his life story, and I mean that was certainly very intriguing to me. I know Davy had read uh, Kings of Queens and really enjoyed it. Uh, I mean, I, I if if I had to guess, that was probably his favorite team, <laughs> and uh, and so obviously it was a thrill for me uh, to have the opportunity to truly work with an icon of this sport. You know, Davey, Bats is the autobiography you did with Peter Golenbach, which focused on the 1985 season. It's filled with the thrill of that pennant race, including plenty of inside information about the players. How did the process of doing a book with Eric, at now age 75, differ from the one that you did with Peter when you were 42 years old and really, you know, a lot of baseball life ahead of you? Well, I think the book with Peter Golenbach was supposed to be a, 
uh, diary of the whole season, but he kind of, kind of got mishmashed in there. Uh, but when I did that book with him, I had no idea that that was also going to lead to my firing in 1990. <laughs> <laughs> so the good thing with Eric, I, it, nobody can fire me. <laughs> uh, uh, Eric, the attention to detail with all your books is, is always off the charts, but... In this book especially, when Davey retells the in-game moments, I'm wondering, did, did the two of you sit down and watch game videos, or is that just Davey's recall uh, on Davey's part? Because I'll give you an example. This recounting in a bat in the 71 World Series, it states, Davey goes, after Blast issued a leadoff walk to Buford, I stepped up to the plate and tried to interrupt the flow of the game. After working the count to one and one, I stepped out, took a long look toward our third base coach, Billy Hunter, took a practice swing, knocked some dirt out of my spikes, and then asked the umpire to check the ball. Now, is that all Davey's recall, or did you guys actually sit and watch some game films? It was a mix. Um, one of my jobs as Davey's co-author really is to do my research uh, and to come up with questions for him. I, I refer to them with Davey as triggers. So I would ask him questions, and they would trigger very specific memories. I, I mean, I have to give Davey all the credit in the world. His, his memory, once I come up with these triggers for him, is phenomenal. And that made my job a lot easier. But, but, but certainly what you just described, um, you know, I took a look at some video, and then off of that video, I asked Davey about it. And, I mean, he remembers the at-bat uh, from 50 years ago. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, and that was a theme over really the whole year that we worked together. It was just my job to come up with these triggers. And, and Davey's uh, recall is, is just phenomenal. Yeah, it's so cool, you know, reliving those and hearing, you know, the play-by-play -play in your mind. Davey, in the book, you talk a lot about your dad, who was a major influence on you. He's a war hero, a former POW. Great story about how you found out, you know, certain things about him uh, later on in life. Um, he also was someone who was very strict and, and would not give out praise for a job well done. You mentioned that you were going to be the opposite with your teams as the parents, as a parent, but you also mentioned that your mom was the perfect counterbalance to your dad, as she was the one who gave out praise. So I'm wondering, as a manager, did you seek to have that counterbalance, where you would be the guy giving out praise and picking up the ball player? Was there someone on each individual coaching staff that you needed to be a counterbalance that would kind of be strict with the players? Well, number one, I also could kick a guy in the ass if he needed it. You know, so it wasn't always about praise. But, you know, the one thing about managing it, what you want, and the players can sense it from a manager, is you want every player to be successful on your team. And your job is to kind of put them in situations where they can do well. And sometimes get a little off track, that's when you've got to, you know, come down a little hard on them. But by and large, it's always, I always believed in one thing. Always deal from the positive. Never deal from the negative. I mean, always tell them what they do good. Never harp on anything they do bad. And one thing about Eric, he, did, he, he could pull the trigger on me. He, he could name one thing, and all of a sudden it, my memory would come flashing back. Oh, yeah, I remember all that. Oh, Steve Blash hit in 71. He, he painted. The next year he couldn't even throw it in the bullpen. I mean, he couldn't even hit the no. net, you know, in batting practice. I mean, he went from the greatest pitcher in the world to I don't, he just he couldn't, he couldn't even throw it anywhere near the plate. 
It's unbelievable. Yeah, worst case of the yips in Major League Baseball for sure. Uh, One of my favorite quotes in the book, and it's one that really had a tremendous effect on you, Davey, was a man you considered almost a second father, and that's Texas A&M coach Tom Chandler. Chandler had offered you a four-year scholarship to Texas A&M, and then at dinner later it would become a one-year scholarship, at which point you said, you know, um, at which point you said, wait a minute, you told me four years. And then he said, that's what's wrong with youth today. They all want security and not an, and oppor- not an opportunity. I can remember like it was yesterday. And, then, you know, I don't know if I went on in the book, but also later on I made the basketball team, and he transferred my scholarship to basketball. <laughs> but but what about that resonated with you? You know, because obviously as a young man, especially you know today's game, they're all looking for security, long term deals, as opposed to just the opportunity to make. What stuck with you so much that that was something that you really took a hold of? Well, here was a manager that you know I wanted to I wanted to play for him. I liked him as a person, and when he looked me right in the eye and said, "Everybody's looking for security, not an opportunity," it hit right home. And I, I wasn't looking for security. I was just looking for a chance to go play. And so, you know, and I think that's what stayed with me my whole career is I wanted to give everybody an opportunity uh, for them to live up to their potential, and that's all I cared about. You know, Eric, I know from working on different projects of my own, when you get to talk to someone who's either played with or against players you grew up idolizing, it's pretty special. You and I are of a similar age. Tell me what it's like for you sitting with Davey, hearing stories about the greats of our youth, the Robinsons, Palmer, Koufax, Tiant, Killebrew, you know, Carew, Aaron Clemente, and, and Willie Stargell. It's always a surreal experience, I think, in the beginning. But what develops, and I, and I think it's a natural thing where – I mean, you spend hundreds of hours, literally, with your subject. And, and with the case of Davey, uh, I mean, he became a friend. And, uh, you know, I think I became someone that he uh, came to trust uh, as a friend, that he could feel secure in telling me anything that he wanted. And, and it was between us. And, and, and really, that's the kind of trust that you have to build. And, and after a while, you know, I guess after talking to him and meeting with him two or three times, he went from being, you know, this, this guy that I remember hitting 43 home runs with the Braves and playing with Hank Aaron, uh, who really was my hero, and, um, you know, and being the manager of the 86 Mets, to just being Davey, you know. And, and you, know, we, you know, we talk on the phone, phone now, and um, it's just like a normal relationship. And so after that initial meeting or two, um, then – you know, they put their pants on just like anybody else, one leg at a time. And, and, um, and Davey and I, you know, have certainly developed a great relationship, and, um, and it's something that I certainly treasure. So, Eric, this is A.J. Carter. So here's a, a weird question. You're an MIT grad. Davey loved math and baseball and early sabermetrics. How much would that provide a commonality? Or is that just something, just a quirky thing that you're MIT and he was a math guy? Oh, actually, I'm a graduate of Emerson College. I'm, I'm not nearly okay. smart enough to have gone to MIT. I know I was looking at that uh, LinkedIn said MIT. Uh, could be another Eric Sherman. Okay. <laughs> Says we're right here. Okay, I apologize. That's okay. So, Davey, one of the greats you talk about in the book uh, and that you developed a special relationship with was Ted Williams. And I love talking to the guys that played for Ted. Can you tell us, first of all, you know, how that relation came about and what you learned about hitting from Ted. Well, I tell you, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was down in uh, Miami uh, in spring training with the Orioles, and we were playing uh, the Texas club. 
and I was in the batting cages down the right field line, and he came down there, walking down there with two two cameramen with him. They're walking down there, and I jumped out of the cage, and I went up to Mr. Williams, and I said, Mr. Williams, can I ask you a question about hitting? He said, sure. I said, did you really squeeze the bat that hard like you were squeezing the sawdust out of it? He said, no, son. I held that back like I was holding a, a bird or a fish, and I didn't want to kill it, but I didn't want it to get away. <laughs> and we talked for 20 minutes after that. And ever since that happened, you know, he held up those guys, TV guys, for a long time. Ever since that, every time I came to anywhere he was around, I'd come over and talk to him before the game. And, of course, uh, he lived down in Alamorada, and I used to go down there. I had an interest in a marina and restaurant. He lived right around the corner. I'd go over to his house, and we'd stand up in his house talking about hitting. I used to tell him, I said, you, you talked about the Hipcock, but you didn't explain it, but I figured it out. So that after two more vodkas, we, we got on the same page. And it was great. <laughs> it's so interesting because, uh, you know, like I said, whenever I have the opportunity to speak to someone who's played for, for Ted, I always ask them what they learned from him. And one guy that I spoke to, and it almost an exact story like you told, was Lenny Randall. And Ted took Lenny fishing. And showed Lenny that you know batting is a lot like fishing, and you have to you, you can't you know be stiff on that you know fishing rod, or the, the fish will feel it, and you can't just be you know jerking it around. It's got to be loose in your hands. So it's very interesting that he, he kind of said the same thing to you. So, but one guy that you didn't learn a lot about hitting from was Daryl Johnson, one of your minor league uh, instructors who taught the Oriole way of hitting. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, Daryl was you know he uh, you know anytime you have a manager, you always looked up to him, and he. Played in the big leagues. Uh, his average, I think, in the big leagues was 220 or something. Uh, and he was a pretty smart guy and really personal. I liked Darrell a lot. But Brooks Robinson had this kind of inside-out swing. He could take the low and in fastball and get a base hit to right field. It was just an inside-out swing. Uh, I didn't hit that way when I was coming up. I used to, if the ball was low and in, I'd hit it over the left field wall. If the ball was low and away, I'd hit it in right center. And, uh, he convinced me that I needed to do that, and so I tried to do it. And I spent about two years trying to do it until I said, man, I can't do this. This is awful. <laughs> you know, we're talking with author Eric Sherman and Davey Johnson on WLIA 540 AM Sports Talk New York. Eric, you look at the way that Davey describes his Oriole years as a player, and it could also sum up his years as a Met manager. The Mets, like the Orioles, for a three-year period, probably man for man, were maybe the most talented teams in baseball. Both of them had one championship to show for it. When talking to Davey about those two teams, I get the feeling that there is more pride than regret. Is that your feeling when you got to speak to him about those two teams? Oh, 100%. I mean, I mean his time with the Orioles, uh, I, I mean, you could make a case that that was truly Baltimore's glory days, you know, starting in 1966 uh, in Davey's first se- season. You know, they win the World Series. They, they beat that great Dodgers team of Koufax and Drysdale. Um, and then they had that great run from 69 through 71 when, I mean, they easily could have won the World Series all, all three years. I mean, they had the most talent. Uh, in 1970, they did. Uh, and 69, the Miracle Mets beat them. You know, and in 71, it was Blass and Clemente that, that kind of shut them down in a great seven-game series. Um, but, no, his time in Baltimore as a player was phenomenal. And his time with the Mets, you know, uh, as your listeners well know here in the New York area, 
I mean, Davy took over a team that had been in the doldrums. They were cellar dwellers for seven years, uh, really from 76 through 83, and and Davy comes along and he takes over a, basically a last-place team uh, for half a generation. And in 84, I mean, that first season that he took over, I talked to a lot of Mets fans. That is the most fun year I think fans have had with the Mets over the last 30 or 35 years because it just came out of nowhere. And by the time 86 came around, the team was so good uh, that a world champion, it was almost like World Series or bust. Uh, but 84 through you know, 89, beginning of 90, I mean, Davey had six-plus years with an average of 96 wins a season. Uh, a World Series championship, and you know, if the wild card were around <laughs> back then, Mets would have made it every single year. So um, you'd still be managing very, the Mets. <laughs> two two very successful uh, periods in Dave Davies' career. So I I think they were equally good, but great in different ways. You know, I could spend three weeks of shows on the Orioles teams alone. Didn't get into the fact that what Louis Aparicio meant to his career. You know, what yeah. Brooks Robinson meant to his career as far as fielding. Mark Belanger. I mean, just literally three weeks alone on the Orioles team. But let's move on to the Braves. Eric, again, you mentioned that Henry Aaron was one of your childhood idols. So I imagine being able to relive Henry Aaron's run at Babe Ruth through a teammate's eyes. You know, and right, a guy who was right next to him in his locker had to be pretty special. Special for for you. What did you learn about that run to Babe Ruth's record that you had not known before from Davy? Well, I I I, I wasn't aware um, that Davy lockered next to him, um, and I wasn't aware that that Hen- Henry Aaron kept a lot to to himself. You know, uh, the Atlanta Braves. They were in the Deep South. It was the early '70s. There was a lot of racism. A lot of fans sending de- death threats. A lot of folks out there didn't want uh, Henry to break Babe Ruth, a white man's record. Um, so what Davy sh- shared with me really was how, I, you know, the Braves were really looking forward to getting that whole thing over with uh, because of all the pressure that was on Henry. And, and uh, you know, it should have been such a joyous time uh, for not just Henry Aaron but, but, but for the Braves. And it was really more a case of, well, you know, let's get this over with. So, you know, the hate mail will stop and all that. But, um, but I also really enjoyed um, hearing about Davey tell me how, you know, he went from hitting 16 home runs <laughs> to hitting 443 and, 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 and all that that entailed and, and how he did it. Uh, I mean, it was just, you know, one of the great leaps in the history of the game and, and that record still stands today for second baseman. He had 43 home runs as a second baseman that season. Yeah, which is interesting because, Davey, you actually went to the Orioles and asked to be traded. You were having some issues, and, and what really hurt you was Earl Weaver, who was a good friend of yours. You know, Every time you went to a doctor, they couldn't find anything wrong, and they kept on trotting you out there, and you kept on telling him that you were hurt to play Bobby Gritch. But right. he kept on saying, you know, just go out there. And you, you felt that maybe you were at the end of your career because the, the pain and everything, but you wanted to go to the National League because of the way the National League played the game. You thought it was better suited to you. So right. you, you get traded. 
um, you get to, long, to play alongside Henry Aaron, and you move away from the so-called Orioles' way of hitting. You start pulling the ball more, which really helped you hit for more power. Plus the fact the, the trainer in Atlanta found out what was wrong with you. You go on, as Eric said, to set the all-time single-season um, mark for home runs by a second baseman. Um, and you're kind of upset about that, too, because one of them came in a pinch-hitting role, so quote-unquote... I'm tied with Hornsby. Yeah, yeah. I'd rather be tied with Hornsby than have the record. Uh, that, well, that, uh, that's pretty cool. So what did that season and that particular record, even though, I mean, obviously, all-star, you know, right up there for Rookie of the Year, the championships with Baltimore, what did that particular individual record mean to you? You know, it, it, it didn't mean that much to me, it's Just that, except I thought I was now expressing my talent the way... I had God-given talent to hit the ball out front when it was inside and hit the ball the other way when it's outside. And that's where I learned to hit coming up. And I always hit home runs everywhere I went until I tried to be some 300 hitter that could hit any ball anywhere I wanted to. And so it was very rewarding. And once I fixed my left shoulder, which was sublex very bad, I mean, I leaned against more car doors and windows and everything else you can think of getting my shoulder strong. But... Once it was healthy, I was, I was very happy that I could express my talent. And what's also cool about that, which is something I learned from, and I, I mean, I learned a lot from the book, but obviously this was well before the age of social media, yeah. but he was still loved in Baltimore, and at Memorial Stadium on that little scoreboard underneath the scoreboard, they would give Davey Johnson updates about his home runs, which <laughs> was crazy. Was, I love it. Yeah, they traded me for a catcher that's supposed to hit home runs. Yeah. And, um, it wasn't, it wasn't, didn't work out. <laughs> Did not work out, right. <laughs> uh, like I said, in this book, like all of Eric Sherman's book, it's so full of great stories. We could do a year and a half worth of shows around the book alone. There's one story from the Braves years that I never, ever heard about, and it involves Davey and Mike Lum, and then Davey and Eddie Matthews getting into a fight. So, Davey, oh, yeah. can you tell us a little bit about that, especially what Eddie Matthews had to say on his deathbed? <laughs> Well, Eddie Matthews on his deathbed said he, he, one thing he misses that he didn't get a chance to just beat the shit out of me. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> what, what it was was I, he, Eddie would promise me a day off, and he'd say, you're going to have a day off, and then I'd go out and hit a home run, and then the next day I wouldn't have off. <laughs> and, and then finally one day in Philadelphia I hit like three balls to the warning track, and I was upset because he said I was going to have that day off. And I came to my room early, and I was in my room, and, Mike Lum didn't bring his key, and he was my roommate, and he banging on the door at 1230, and I opened the door, and he pushes me, and I decked him. <laughs> and then the whole club was there. Matthews took me his room, and he said, hit him. So I hit him, too. So that's the way that went. <laughs> <laughs> and now, I finally, now, because of Bob Murphy, the only fact I knew about Mike Lum was he was like the only player before it's Benny Agbae from yeah, Hawaii. Hawaii. Now yeah. I know something more about Mike yeah. Lum. I love it. Um, Eric, when I set up the interview for tonight's show with you and Davey, I posted a promo on it for social media. And in describing you, I wrote that you are one of this generation's best sports writers. Again, as we grew up in the same era, I'm wondering what writers you read as a kid and what author would you say had the biggest influence on you? Probably the two Rogers, uh, Roger Kahn and Roger uh, Angel. Um, you know, Roger Kahn wrote uh, The Boys of Summer. Uh, Roger Angel has written for The New Yorker for, I think, 65 years or something like that. Um, so obviously, I, I, I really... Um, Got a lot of in inspiration from those two legendary writers. Uh, but I grew up in the New York area. 
um, I, you know, I grew up reading Dick Young and Mike Lupica, and um, who were fine writers, and you know, the writers with the New York Times, and um, you know, some of your best writers in New York are sports writers. Um, so from the time, and my father um, worked uh, with the New York Post when I was a kid, and um, he wasn't a writer. Uh, he worked in the circulation department, um, but. You know, on, on Saturdays uh, during the wintertime, uh, some kids were out on the basketball court or wherever, and I was in newsrooms with my dad. And, uh, and you know, I would hang out in the archives department and, you know, read articles from the 20s and 30s, and um, I was like a kid in a candy store. So I, I always wanted to be a writer. Um, I love the fact, um, you know, even as young as 14 years old, I was getting paid to write. And I knew it was something I always wanted to do. And, and then a professor in college uh, said something that has really stuck with me. Uh, he said, there's nothing older than yesterday's newspaper, so that's why I wanted to write books. <laughs> Very interesting. That's great. That's a great line. Uh, we're talking with, obviously, Eric Sherman and Davey Johnson. Great new book out. Um, so we mentioned the run at Ruth by Aaron, um, but you had the same view two years later, a different continent, world apart, in Tokyo, when Sarah said, oh, and you point to the book that the two of them, in ways, were very similar, that in their own homeland, there was a lot of prejudice against them. Tell us about what was similar between the two and what you saw when they were both making runs at, at obviously, the, the, the mythical, you know, Babe Ruth number. Well, we had you know, a third baseman on our club, uh, Nagashima, was uh, 100% Japanese, and so he was the greatest player that ever come down the road, but actually Sarhar O was. But Sarhar was half Japanese and half Hawaiian, I think, or something, and, or Chinese or something. But uh, Sarhar was, you know, he came up like Ruth. He was a pitcher, and then he went to first base. Just had, you know, he lifted up his front leg like Melot, and he could just hit the ball hard anywhere. And, uh, uh, you know, I, when I first saw him, you know, we had McNally and Cuellar and Palmer uh, pitched against him, and he handled them just very easily, hit home runs off McNally. Uh, but Sahara O was just a great guy, and I, I, was, I was actually hitting sixth behind both of them when they broke Bruce's record. That's you know, wild. Let's, let's ask one question about, not off of the book, but different times. If you take a look at what's happening there, you have Otani. His goal, he plays a bit in Japan, and he wants to come and play in the United States. Sadahiro did not come to the United States. I'm not sure exactly why. Do you think if it were 2018 were there, would he have, as uh, Ichiro did, play a bit there and would have come here, or do you think just the times are so different, having watched him play? I, I, you know, when I went over there, it was only Americans coming to Japan. Yeah. Right. They were yeah. trying to learn the game of baseball. They've been playing it since the war, but they were trying to learn and compete on the highest level. And when I was over there, uh, I thought that there were some players over there would be stars in the big leagues. And certainly O was one of them. Uh, but in, I think Suzuki was the one that started creating uh, more interest in Japanese players coming over here. And of course now Otani, who's an outstanding you know pitcher and hitter, so it's I think it's fun. I think it's great for baseball worldwide. Yeah, absolutely, in an international game now. You know, Eric, this book has 35 chapters. When you first did your outline for the book, did you have that many chapters? As for me, there's a chapter that 
you know, might not have made that original outline, but it, it's one that I loved. Um, it's called Hola Amigos, and I'm wondering if that was always on your radar. No, and I knew that was the one that you were going to say. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, that, you know, I, I, I had no idea. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I thought I knew quite a bit about Davy, and I think I do, and I did. Uh, but that was one thing I didn't know until I started doing research, and I said, Hey, Davy, talk to me about the Miami Amigos. And, um, and uh, you know, big smiles and laughs. I mean, I, you know, he, he had great success in that, in that half a season. I mean, tremendous success, and, uh, and, and I think even more fun doing it. And it was really his first foray into managing. Um, and uh, it was a very important chapter. Because, you know, I mean, Davey can talk more to it, but, you know, it probably showed him he could be a pretty darn good manager because he did an outstanding job, not just as manager, but also really running the organization from the top down. Absolutely. And, Davey, your love for that team comes through crystal clear. Uh, as he mentioned, the Miami Amigos were in the Inter-American League, which is a minor right. league that existed for only a half a season. Um, it had former major leaguers, guys with psychiatric issues, guys who can only play weekdays. Um, <laughs> it, it's definitely something that I could see like as a Netflix documentary for sure. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that first experience as a manager? And it really would set up a springboard for the big leagues for you. Well, number one, you know, uh, when uh, uh, the guy, the president of the American Association, uh, I think Ryan, called me up and said, would I manage this ball club? He said, we got we got to have training camps around. And I said, well, great, we'll, we'll get a training camp. And we'll, I mean, a signing camp down in uh, the, the Miami area and went up in Sanford. And I got to, to pick players. You know, I got to look at their abilities and sign them. And then... Uh, went through the year and it was I had a lot of characters it was it was unbelievable I mean you I don't even get me started thinking about it I mean I, I had some times but um, you know I, even the, even our the girls that ran out and cleaned off the bases the hot and juicies from uh, Wendy's you know we had everything going and, and and we were just we we hadn't really been at home much we were just starting to be at home and we were tearing the league up so bad that. The league just decided to quit because we were 15 games up after eight, eight <laughs> games or something, so they quit. It's it's such an enjoyable chapter. It, it's it it's like great. Morristown Frackers. Exactly. It yeah. does sound like that a little bit. Eric, that brings us to the, the Mets chapters, and you've probably spoken to every member of that 1986 team. Was there a difference in perspective hearing it from the manager's viewpoint than from the players that you've already interviewed for your other books? A little bit. Well, you know, 40% of the book um, is dedicated to Davy's time with the Mets. You know, we figured give the people what they want, and and you know certainly those years. Although uh, the Marge Shot years and the Peter Angelos years, they're they're pretty darn interesting too. I mean, the Mets were just one of those iconic teams, and and so there's an awful lot in the book about that. But you know, Davy and I had worked a little bit together, um, working on the forward for Kings of Queens. So I was able to get a little bit of a glimpse of his perspective on that team already, which really helped me, uh, you know, prepare for his mem memoir. You know, it's interesting because uh, I got the book, I think, last Friday, didn't put it down, read it from cover to cover this week. And it's interesting this week because 
in the book, Davey, when you talk about Doc and Daryl, it comes across as you as their manager, you felt a responsibility to make them the best players they possibly could be. And since they fell short of that, you somewhat blame yourself a little bit for that. Then Friday, when Mickey Calloway said, when the Mets DFA'd Matt Harvey, we feel like we failed Matt Harvey. I found that quite interesting, although in reality, Doc and Darrell accomplished a hell of a lot more than Matt Harvey did. Um, what are your opinions, first of all, on the fact that Matt Harvey didn't accept a demotion to the minors to figure it out? And do you think the Mets failed him? And why do you feel that you, you failed Doc and Darrell? Lot there. Well, you know, that, those are some tough questions. First of all, Matt Harvey, you know, I think he's a very competitive pitcher. I think he got a little off track, and uh, you know, he, he still has, you know, uh, quite a bit of money that's owed to him. So I, I think he's still going to have a chance to go get his act back together and and continue his big league career. As far as you know, Doc was the biggest surprise in my whole life because Doc was. When I had him at 17 in Kingsport, he'd come to the ballpark. He was 17 years old. He had great command. He's better than Yeomans and Myers. And he was loved to be at the ballpark, and he'd be the last one to leave. And I met his parents. They were great. I knew he had a great high school coach. And he was always happy. And there was nobody any better. He could have pitched in the big leagues when he was 18. He was that good. Uh, uh, overpowering, curveball. But his command was off the charts. I mean, he just had pinpoint command. And the fact is, one of the things, I don't even know if I mentioned the book, but Cashin didn't want him to switch hit. I said, you got to be crazy. Let him switch hit. He loves to switch hit. He's a good hitter. He said he might, he might hit him on the arm. I said, if somebody hits him on the arm, he'll, they'll be dead at the end of the game. Because <laughs> he can hit whoever hit him right where he wants. Uh, but no, they made him just hit right-handed. Daryl was like, you know, a foster son of mine. Uh, great talent. I know he had a rough upbringing. He didn't have much of a father influence. Great talent, number one pick. A lot of pressure on him. Uh, he didn't handle it as well. You know, I mean, he, he could go out there with 80% and still be better than most people on the field. And the, the key with him one year, he had, with a week to go, he had 39 home runs. We were going to win them. We were winning, pennant. But he decided he didn't want to play the last few games. I said, don't you want to hit 40? He said, no, it's not important to him. So you just didn't have that drive for to be the best out there is what I'm trying to say. Interesting. You know, also interesting is this move with, with Matt Harvey was something that Sandy Alderson, the GM of the Mets, asked Matt to do. Eric, pretty early on in this book, we get an insight to Davey's relationship with Frank Cashin. As in the forward, Howie Rose talked about, you know, um, Davey coming on the pregame show and answering a question stating, um, well, Howie asked Frank, you know, he asked a question about a roster move that um, had to do with Roger McDowell, I believe it was. And, you know, Davey answered it, you know, Howie, Frank Cashin did a dumb thing today. And that line to me became a lot more powerful later in the book when you realize that Davey was always brought up as to never go over your boss's head. So yes. did that line, Eric, when, you know, you heard it from Howie, did that strike, you know, a bigger chord because of what Davey told you later? No, well, I mean, I'm not really, really sure didn't, I didn't said surprise that. surprise me. Um, I'm not uh, really positive that I said that. You know. I'm going to go ask Howie, and I'm going to tell him to produce <laughs> the tape. Howie. I'm going to tell Howie that Davey Johnson said you're spreading fake news. 
but I, I, I would never say anything. I never really, my whole life, said anything bad about Frank Cash. Yeah, that's why it, it struck for. me as odd, because especially with your respect, because you even said that later on, had perhaps you go over people's heads, you'd still be managing a certain... So, right. so that line really struck a chord with me. So, you know, let, let's go back to Frank then, David. Um, given your history with him... Uh, with the Orioles and the success you had with the Mets, were you surprised that Frank didn't um, kind of come to you with import when it came to not bringing Kevin Mitchell and Ray Knight back for the 87 season, then trading Lenny Dykstra, Rick Aguilera, and, and Roger McDowell as well? Well, I think, you know, a lot of times uh, the general manager, they sit up there and, and they, they don't really evaluate the players the way you do on the field. And, uh, you know, I, you, you, you give your recommendations to the general manager, but you don't know what the financial restraints are going to be on the player. Maybe they got to trade him because it's too much money. You don't know any of that stuff. So it's really hard to, you know, you can say, I, I don't want to do this. I'm making Aguilar a, a great closer. Yep. <laughs> and you trade him for another starting pitcher, which I don't need. You know, I mean, things like that. Uh, and Mitchell, Mitchell was the, probably the one that hurt me the most because I thought he was – going to be one of the best players I ever had. And I saw him when he was an A-ball. I knew he was a pure hitter. And, yeah. But, you know, you, you give your advice, and then once the decision is made, the general manager makes a decision, you have to support it. And I probably said to Howie Rose that maybe I didn't agree with it, but I didn't call cash and dumb. Okay. You know what I mean? Because, again, I didn't know all the things that might have gone into a trade, you know. Like in, in Mitchell's thing, it was about came from the Hard Knocks area, San Diego, and he's going to be a bad influence on Straw and Doc. And I said, no, he's a good influence. See, I knew this was going. I knew this was going to happen. I, we we canceled our second guest because we wanted you a full time. So I'm not even going to be able to get to the Marge shot in the Angelos years. But uh, you end up managing the Dodgers and the Nationals. And I remember when Eric was writing this book, I had told him I did an interview with you in your last season, your last trip in New York, asking you to contrast that national team that you were then managing and the '86 Mets team. And I'll never forget your answer. And I tried to find it. And I couldn't find it for Eric. But I was able to pull out today. So I want you both to listen to this, and then we'll have one final question. So give a listen to this. You know, wherever you've gone, you've won. But each of your teams have totally different personalities. Going back to 86 Mets and Reds. What would you say the team's personality is? Well, I'd say, you know, the, the personality and makeup, they're all good looking. And I would you know, buy them in my home and take my daughter, you know, they're that kind. I can't say that with a lot of other clubs I've had, especially the one I had here in New York. <laughs> Uh, they're, uh, you know, all-American boys. I mean, they're really uh, uh, top quality. Good no, athletes. Six, then, huh? no, no, great athletes. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a fun club. It's very talented. You know, it's by far the most talented infield I've ever had. And uh, all kinds of offensive potential. So, all-American boys that you wouldn't mind dating your daughter... But you couldn't say that about your 86 Mets. So of all, <laughs> all the teams that you managed, which was your favorite team, group of guys? The Mets. Okay, good. Because I mean, they, were, <laughs> they were so different. I mean, uh, I mean, everybody on the ball club, I mean, from Dykstra to Bachman to Hernandez to Carter to Strawberry, you know, on down the line, I mean, they were all totally different, you know. Uh, and, uh, but when they came to the ballpark, they were ready to play. But there's not one guy on that team that you'd let date your daughter? 
Oh, uh... <laughs> I have to think for a long yeah, time. That's, that's not a good hard. sign. No, I mean, <laughs> Hopefully not Lenny. No, definitely not, not Lenny. Lenny. Definitely not Lenny. Definitely not Lenny. All right. In, in closing, Eric, I know for me each project brings something special to it. What made this project most meaningful for you? Oh, I, I think it was Davy's complete transparency, which was just completely off the charts. Uh, and it's a quality that's very, very rare in these memoirs, um, his honesty. Uh, I mean, he, he had a roller coaster baseball career and life, and I think that it's really well reflected here. And he's a terrific storyteller. Uh, he's very entertaining, very funny. And, uh, you know, it was just, um, you know, the last almost three years now of working together and, and getting to know him, I mean, it's just been a pleasure, and, and I respect who he is uh, and what he accomplished in the game. He's probably um, the best global ambassador baseball's ever seen. You know, he's a guy that played in Japan. He uh, managed the World Baseball Classic team, uh, the Olympic team. Uh, I mean, he's, he's just a baseball icon, and... Um, after Kings of Queens, it wasn't in my plans to be a co-author again. I was going to, you know, write books like Kings of Queens strictly on my own. But, uh, but Eric, I, I knew that Davy's book Eric, was going to be interesting. I, I, I hate so. to cut you off because we got to go to break, guys. I appreciate it so much that you took this much time, and I didn't even do this book justice. Awesome, awesome book. Uh, thank you so much, both of you. Really appreciate it. All right, our Thank pleasure. You. All right, Thanks. Davy Johnson, my wild ride in baseball and beyond. 